0: To GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences.
1: I'm Dr. Lee Frame,
0: Program Director of the Integrative Medicine Program here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking food as medicine with Laura Pole, Director of Nourishment Programs at Smith Center for Healing in the Arts in Washington, D.C., An oncology clinical nurse specialist, oncology nurse
1: navigator, and health-supportive chef, she has more than 30 years of experience in oncology clinical care and innovative professional education.
0: Chef Laura provides training and informances across the country in integrative cancer care, culinary translation in cancer care, palliative care, advanced care planning, and the human art of healing. Laura, what's the first thing you remember about cooking?
2: Wow. Well, let me preface this by saying I grew up in southwest Louisiana, where we eat, still do, anything that walks, crawls, flies, <laughs> swims, or jumps. Uh, but uh, And I was surrounded by lots of great cooks. And the first thing I remember playing around with was in my dreamy kitchen, um, Uh, So this was just a little play kitchen and making mud pies and inviting (laughs) the neighbors over. But uh, then probably the next thing I remember making was cooking with my grandmother. And we loved to make breakfast for dinner. So we would, I remember making biscuits with her. And probably the first thing I ever cooked by myself, nobody around supervising me, was scrambled eggs. Mm. And then I really began cooking when I left home. To go to college in Tennessee and I wanted to bring Louisiana with me in some way so I started cooking for myself and my friends Louisiana style cooking so that's the first thing
1: that's wonderful and I have to add that actually scrambled eggs was also the first thing I ever cooked it's a a nice starter dish
2: yeah eggs are so basic
1: that's right (laughs) fundamental um, so when did you transfer from being you know, your typical average person who cooks to eat to thinking about food as medicine?
2: Well, as I was thinking about this, I kept going. I would remember something and say, oh, no, but then there was this, there was this. So I'm talking about an evolution of realizing this. And it probably started in about 1975 when my mother had a heart attack at the age of 45. And I, so I was 18 or so. And, um, she went on a low cholesterol diet and then eventually went on a very low fat diet, not quite as low as say the Ornish diet. So I think I began to get the idea then that maybe food could help. And she, she was told she couldn't have surgery. She was not a candidate for it. So it was going to be meds and lifestyle. Um, so she was an example to me of that. Uh, then probably the next thing was when I was I had uh, temporomandibular joint uh, pain, and I was working with an um, orth, uh, ortho, um, not an orthodontist but a dentist who sent me to a chiropractor who was very skilled, and he told me to eliminate certain foods from my diet, and lo and behold, that really helped with the pain. And then my um, husband at the time in the early 90s was starting to get some problems with blood pressure. And a doctor told him to follow the McDougall diet, which is a vegan diet, which was so far away from how I ate and how he (laughs) ate. But uh, we did it. And his plan and his way of doing it was very instructive to me. And that's when I started learning how to cook, especially plant-based foods. So that was in the the nineties. Um, and then, uh, as an oncology nurse, I would hear doctors and even dietitians sometimes telling people with cancer, it doesn't matter what you eat, just don't lose weight, you know, get the calories in and really not a lot of thought about the, the quality of the food. And somehow this didn't seem right to me. It seemed like it did matter. So then I went to the Natural Gourmet Institute to become a health-supportive chef and find out what would be important about eating uh, for a person with cancer. And that's really what set me on this path as a culinary translator, so to say.
0: You just mentioned that you went for your training to be a um, health-supportive chef. Can, Mm -hmm. Can you sort of tell us what that means?
2: yeah, so um, you know tr- traditional culinary training at the time uh, did not really focus on necessarily healthy food, you know, and some of it could have been healthy, and it was certainly delicious. But um, this school, the Natural Gourmet Institute for Food and Health, um, had a chef's training program, and we learned how to take classic recipes, and turn them into vegan food if it could be done. If it didn't taste good and it couldn't be done, then it's obviously not something we're going to serve. But, um, so, and we also learned that what's health-supportive um, for one person may not be health-supportive for someone else, and what is health-supportive at one time in your life may not be health-supportive for you at another time. So the, the definition of what was health-supportive eating grew broader and broader as the school evolved. So by the time I went there, we were also working not only with vegan foods, but with chicken and eggs and fish. Um, and now that, that definition grows even broader. So the, the main thing I learned is as a health-supportive chef, it's what would be health-supportive for the person you're working with because uh, you really can't eat dogma. <laughs> and to, I love that. Yeah, so... Uh, you have to individualize it and figure out what's health supportive for the person so basically we learn how to cook every kind of food for the most part in the most health supportive way that we could
1: that's really wonderful lara i think that that hits on a lot of things we try to talk about in integrative medicine with the the personalized care is that there's no one right diet, right? There's the right mm-hmm. diet for you. And it, it might be harder for us to have that conversation with our patients mm-hmm. because you got to do a little extra work, um, and then right. they're going to have to try it out. But I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's worth every minute you're spending
2: on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. If you
1: had one piece of advice to give a healthcare practitioner about how to work through that personalized nutrition issue, what would it be?
2: Oh, one piece of advice. Hmm. Or, uh, you know, a I snippet. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one thing is to um, be open-minded. Um, and again, think of it, you know, people can't eat dogma. And also to think about that there are no good or ba- bad foods. Food just gives information. <clears throat> so, and, and helping people your your patients or clients relax around that because people come in thinking, you know, they don't want to tell you what they eat, they think it's bad and people get so judgmental for themselves or they think we're gonna judge them. I was scared to death to go to this culinary school because it's like, what if I eat something that's not vegan? You know, will they, they come <laughs> after me? You know, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. really be open minded and non-judgmental as you work with people. Um, and we certainly don't have all the answers in it, but there, you know, there are some basic principles that, that you can use as a guide. And within those, there's a lot of, a lot of leeway. Um, so, and really emphasize to people, you know, we want to land in on what's going to work for you and, um, and be partners in this, um, So I would say removing the judgment, being open-minded and um, partnering with people is going to be a big thing. And the other thing is not, oh gosh, glorifying diet as magic and the answer um, and not, you know, over-promising what diet can do. Um, So knowing where where the research is and this is one part of your health, one part of your plan, uh, but you're a whole person. And so we have to integrate this around other aspects of your life, you know? So what about moving? What about your stress? You know, those sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. You have to treat the whole person and their whole life. Mm -hmm. So we love that your title is director of nourishment. Why did you choose nourishment instead of nutrition?
2: Well, because, um, Nutrition is getting down to the science and the the sorted out pieces of um, of diet and food. So it's about nutrients like proteins, calories, and fats. And I really I, I dislike the trend of it's even happening in restaurants. Uh, choose your protein. Choose your this. You know, so I don't eat proteins. I eat food. You know, and and it's it's so much more. Than nutrients, it's the whole. You are nourished through the 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 sight of the food, uh, the smell of it cooking, the people you are enjoying it with. Um, So there are so many more parts to nourishment. the 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 digestion piece. um, You you know you might eat the healthiest food in the world, but it won't necessarily nourish you if you are. Eating on the run, stressed out, having an argument while you eat, so nourishment is the whole piece around um, the goodness of what you get from food and It reminds me of I was teaching a class and talking about eight principles, which we'll talk about in a little bit and um, there was a woman from France in the class and and all the people in the class had cancer and um, and I the last principle that I hadn't gotten to was delicious. And she was like, you talk about all this science and all this stuff, but you know, food is just enjoyable, it's pleasurable (laughs) in France, you know, Mm. so and so and so. So it includes all of that. Um, And it's not just about the science of the various nutrients that you put in your body. And people often call me mistakenly a nutritionist or a dietitian, and I tell them, uh, though I understand nutrition, I had lots of nutrition science in nursing school, um, I am not a nutritionist. I am a culinary translator, and what I do is help you take the diet that's been prescribed to you or that you've read about and you're trying to make sense of, and I help you translate that onto the plate. Um, and I talk about all the practical steps that go in between that prescription and getting it on the plate and into you.
1: Yeah, I think that's something we can all actually identify with, because we've all had those moments, you know, a holiday, a meal that you you have the same meal every year. And it's, it's about the feeling of it almost more than the food Mm -hmm. itself.
2: Absolutely. I mean, how much of that time is spent chewing and swallowing and And how much of that time was the preparation and the family arriving and all that? So the eating part is just one little bit of that whole thing that food has become the centerpiece. It's gathered you here, but it's more than just that.
1: What do you find is the the biggest barrier obstacle that you see when working with patients in terms of getting them to a healthier Way of looking at food and, and healthier lifestyle?
2: I think the thing I hear the most is I don't have time. Mm. I don't know what, what you all hear, or what your experience is. And yes. that's probably become more and more the issue. And, uh, you know, back in the old days, <laughs> somebody was probably cooking for you at home. Um, so many of us don't know how to cook anymore. Um, and, um, and, and so we don't know what goes into it or we have, we, we have as much time as we want to make for it. So I do spend a lot of time helping people, um, parse that out. And, and then if, and if it's really is the issue and there and food cannot, preparing food cannot be their priority, then, Let's look at ways you can get health supportive food um, that nourishes you that you enjoy and it and we save some time in some way or the other so it has to be it has to be practical uh, sometimes people also think they can't afford it, uh, but that's not usually the number one um, so I just listen to people and let them explain to me you know, why it is they think they don't have time and let's see how we can work around that. And one of the things I do is just use myself as an example. When I was talking about learning the McDougal diet, for instance, um, I was working full time at the hospital. I had a sideline music business that I was working on the weekends. I was on three boards, you know, meetings at night, rehearsals, um, And yet I still was going to be the primary, you know, preparer of this food for my family. And, um, and I talk about what I did to, um, to make that happen in a way that it didn't stress me out that we can enjoy it. And it became part of our lives.
0: What are eight basic food principles and, and how can they be used for health and wellness?
2: Yeah, so these are um, some principles I learned in culinary school. And what I tell people, um, when I go to the refrigerator or the pantry and think about what I'm going to eat, or if I go out to a restaurant or shop in the grocery store, or if I'm thinking of the menu I'm going to prepare for you on this retreat, these are some of the principles I use uh, in, in preparing. So they're not the only principles, but these are ones I like to use. And again, I, I first start off reminding myself that, um, you know, there you can't eat dogma. Uh, there are no good or bad foods. Foods mostly gives information. And then I um, think about Michael Pollan, who says, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. So these are sort of some general guiding principles. And then the principles are um, eating whole foods. So whole is one. And that means eating all the edible parts of the food as nature provides it. So that would mean, for instance, eating an apple and the skin, and I would get an organic one if I'm going to eat the whole apple, as opposed to apple juice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eating whole grains Um, instead of lots of uh, refined grains. Um, So that's, and I also say if you enjoy eating chicken, for instance, cook the chicken with the bone in it. You're going to get, it's going to taste better. It's going to be moister. You're going to cook in some of the, the minerals in the bone into the meat. Then you can turn those bones into stock if you're so inclined. So eating all the edible parts of the food as nature provides it. Uh, the second a uh, second principle is fresh, and that's less important than it used to be because when used to canned vegetables and fruits uh, had less nutrient value, but now they're according to the dietitians they're doing a much better job with canning, and so the nutrient value is not that low as it well. That used to and be. I
1: think frozen vegetables are more available now as well. Yeah,
2: exactly. And those are usually flash frozen right after they're picked. So so I, I don't want to say you always have to eat fresh, but from a, a culinary standpoint, uh, fresh vegetables and fruits taste different. And depending on how you're using them, that might be an important factor. So I wouldn't want to take frozen green beans, thaw them out and throw them in a salad, for instance, um, but if I cook them or put them in a soup frozen, then that would be okay. So fresh is kind of a, a taste thing and you know context thing with whatever you're preparing. Um, and then another principle is natural. So eating food as close to the natural state as it was when it came out of the ground or off the bush. For instance, eating a Potato with the skin on it that you baked or boiled as opposed to potato chips, uh, eating an orange instead of orange jello now that's I know that's extreme, but and <laughs> but then, a good it example. also <laughs> means eating foods when we talk about natural with as few uh, pesticides and and harmful chemicals as possible um, so th- that might um, and then people start asking me about organic. Does that mean I need to eat everything organic? And and you probably know about the environmental working groups, the Dirty Dozen and Clean Fifteen. And so, and as a gardener, I know that not everything I grow is going to need some sort of help in terms of pests. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the Dirty Dozen lists those foods, those fresh produce for that year that is most likely to have been sprayed with pesticides. So that's also what we mean by natural is trying to have food that has as little added harmful chemicals as possible. Well,
1: and I'm glad you pointed out too that it's for that year. I think a lot of people don't realize that actually. They think this is just a set in stone dirty dozen and it's Mm -hmm. out every year and you have to kind of pay attention for that year also something that I do is I try to pay attention to like the ones that are typically on the dirty dozen or typically on the clean 15 because then you know Uh, you're pretty good at getting those in one or the other
2: right so you know apples as long as I can remember have always been on the dirty dozen right
1: I always Uh, buy those organic
2: right and so you know it's a lot you're going to save yourself some money and be able to prioritize Um, if you look at your shopping list and it's on the dirty dozen, and you can't find it organic, then maybe you're going to wait and get it next week or get it somewhere else. Uh, and I will never pay organic prices for asparagus because they're never sprayed. Yeah, you don't
1: spray asparagus. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so another, another principle um, after natural would be um, local and that's a big thing. You hear about locavores and that sort of thing. But eating food that's grown locally um, has several advantages. One is it didn't have to travel and add to the carbon footprint to get here. Um, it's likely to be fresher. It's likely that they didn't have to put preservatives on it. Um, and if you buy from the lo- in the farmer market, and can talk to the farmers or the people at the stand, they could tell you what kind of growing practices they use, and they might say, well, we aren't certified organic because we, we can't afford to be certified, but we can tell you that this is low spray or no spray or, or whatever. So eating foods local, and if you eat locally grown foods, in most cases, they're also going to be seasonal. So that's another principle So eating food that's in season where you are, because every food is in season somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to say I'm not going to occasionally enjoy a mango in the middle of the, and uh, there'll never be a local mango in Roanoke, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's not like I stick to these uh, religiously. But if you think about it, In the winter, the foods that either grow in the winter or are storable to feed you throughout the winter. Winter are your um, root vegetables like potatoes and turnips and rutabagas and your winter squashes and some of your greens. Um, And of course, citrus fruits are in season in the colder months. And it's kind of interesting to me that something high in vitamin C is so available during cold and flu season. Um, but anyway, eating those types of food, it was meant to nourish us at a time of year where we're, it's cold and um, we want to stay warm and we want food that's going to stick to our ribs. And um, I've worked with a lot of people with cancer who were on raw foods diets Which pretty much means that you're eating foods that typically grow in the summer, and you know. And they were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm freezing all the time," and blah blah blah. You know, in the winter, and I'm like, "Well, that's because none of these foods are in season, and maybe we need to look at maybe taking a break from the raw foods as long as you're going to be up here, you know, where the temperatures are so cold." Now, if you want to spend the winter in Florida that would be a different situation. So foods that are in season cue us about that. And interestingly, one of the reasons they think we can eat so much uh, food in the summer, uh, foods that we used to not eat, um, is because we're in air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that cue of this food is really making me hot and, you know, full. And, you know, if you were eating it out in the hot hot weather, you, would, you wouldn't you would even eat that much food or that kind of food.
1: That's true. So when you get you, hot and sweaty, you don't want to eat a bunch of food.
2: Right. So we're kind of losing our cues, you know. And then after seasonal, another one, I love this, um, in harmony with tradition. And there's a couple of parts to that. One is that um, when you, um, if you are going to eat more plant-based diet. One of the ways you're going to get your protein is from grains and beans. Um, and, um, and some people just don't know where to start with that. You know, probably the main grain they've ever eaten is wheat. And um, maybe the beans they've had was in refried beans at the Mexican restaurant. So what are the beans and grains that my ancestors ate in the old country? Um, And this makes for a fabulous conversation with your parents, your grandparents, or anybody you can find who remembers the old way. Um, And um, so chances are those beans and grains might taste good to you. It could be even you have a genetic ability to digest those better than you would some other beans. I think of soy for myself. I cannot digest soy well at all. Um, And I don't, I haven't done my gene testing, you know, but I, and I may have some Asian genetics in me, but, you know, I'm probably just not geared up genetically to digest those. So you mentioned, uh, Jeanette, some, you had black eye peas at lunch. And so those beans are indigenous to certain parts of Africa and the U.S., So uh, think about the beans and grains of your ancestors. And also in harmony with tradition is bringing in the cultural part of your, and maybe even the religious parts of your food traditions and remembering those. And then another is balance. So you want foods that are balanced for colors, for taste and texture. So if everything was boiled, you'd be so bored with it. And uh, so, you know, Varying it, and some things would be soft, and some things would be chewy, and some things crunchy, some things fresh, some things cooked. You also want balance for quantity. And um, one way to look at that is to look at the American Institute for Cancer Research and their new American plate, um, or um, there are other sites that also have my plate, for instance. But it shows you about how much of what kind of food uh, should take up the plate, take up the real estate on your plate. So balancing and also... Um, before we continue,
1: I actually want to yeah. interject there. Uh, one Ooh. of my favorite tools is the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate. I don't uh-huh. know if you're familiar with that, but it's, I, I feel like it's like my plate, but more sciencey, And I always, usually oh, recommend awesome. that one for my patients.
2: Okay. And so I work, see, mostly with people with cancer. So it may be very similar, but like two thirds of the plate are from plants and one third would be from the animal kingdom. Or if it's a vegetarian plate, then that other third would be your more concentrated, say, grains and beans for your protein. And when I talk about plants, it's like, okay, I know corn is a plant, but it's really a grain. And you know, we're talking about a rainbow of vegetables and and a whole two-thirds of your plate is mashed potatoes doesn't
1: count. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not count, though mashed potatoes are delicious. Right.
2: So if you're really into the science, so that's called the Harvard um, healthy, healthy plate. eating
1: plate. Yes, it's, eating it's, plate. it's similar in structure to my plate and and actually, it's not diet prescriptive. So you can use it with any diet. If you're a vegetarian, if you're uh, a pescatarian, if you're paleo, it, 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 you could still apply it. It's And it's similar to what you're saying. It's about having the majority of your plate being plants and having right. your drink of choice being water.
2: Yes. That's another thing I talk to people about is um, people drink and drink with their meals. Um, and... I think part of that is that people don't chew very well. And so they're using the liquid as a way of getting that bolus of food down Mm -hmm. because they haven't really chewed it well enough. And I tell people that your stomach is a pot and it's going to finish cooking your food um, and getting it ready to go into the intestines. And any pot, if it's filled to the rim is not going to cook the food evenly. So the parts of the bottom of the pot are going to turn to mush, and the parts of the top won't cook at all. And then this gets pushed into your intestines, and no wonder people have problems with gas and bloating and such. And then when a pot is full, it also overflows. And I tell people, so if your stomach's a pot and it's overflowing, where does it go? And then they kind of get the, these big eyes and they say, Oh, yeah, it's going in my esophagus. And I said, How many of you have reflux? Mm-hmm. You know, and so they're like, Oh, yeah. So to think about it in those terms, so what, how much food fills two thirds of your stomach? Well, I have people put their two hands together with their palms up, sort of like you're going to scoop up water. Uh, so you make like a little bowl with your hands and two thirds of your stomach is filled by this volume in your hands, your hands, not some other person's hands. And, and I tell people that's either chewed or unchewed food. And I say, I like to eat a lot (laughs) and I can. uh, so if I chew really well, I can get more food in my stomach and still have (laughs) room for digestion. So, um, and, and that actually I learned from Ayurveda. So, um, yeah, it's real practical uh, to think, and but people, and it, so if you add a lot of liquid, whether it's water or not, you're going to fill up your that pot too much. And I'd rather eat uh, rather <laughs> than drink and fill my stomach up. And so I also recommend people drink sips of warm or room temperature liquids at meals, and then if you eat food that's moist and such and soups and things like that, you're going to get some of your liquid in th- that way and then get the rest of your hydration in at other times.
1: That's great. Um, we couldn't yeah. agree more with you, especially yeah. about the, the warm liquid. If you're drinking a lot of cold yeah. liquid, you're going to knock down your enzymes and you're not going to be able to digest.
2: And heat. I mean, cooking takes heat and digestion takes heat and right, all of that. And then the last principle, which is certainly not the least, and it's the one I spend the most time with people on, is delicious. And uh, if it's not delicious, it's not nourishing. Um, So that's something I really work with people on. And people with cancer have particular challenges, particularly when they're on treatment, with the food not tasting like it used to. Um, And so I work a lot with them in flavor building, Um, so that the food can be delicious. But, you know, for instance, fish, a lot of people don't know how to cook fish where it tastes good to them. And so, but if they, if you teach them a way to make it delicious, then all of a sudden a food that they really did not like to eat, they, now they like it because it tastes good. And that's really, I love the delicious part. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, that's
1: all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Chef Laura.
2: Sure. My pleasure. Eat well. You too. Okay. Bye bye.
0: Bye. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.